This video is sponsored by Jerry's Artorama. Jerry's Artorama Online has been serving artists for over 50 years, providing only the best quality art supplies. Jerry's Artorama has premier lines that sell all over the world and are used by millions of artists and professionals worldwide for amazing results. In addition to over 65,000 fine art supplies, choose from over 4,000 free art lessons. Oil painting, drawing, acrylics, watercolors, mixed media, and the largest selection of new supplies professionally evaluated and created by artists for artists. Jerry's Artorama has been empowering artists since 1968. We provide reliability, better art supplies, great prices, and exceptional service. The quality of your art matters to us. Hey everyone, today we are talking about queer artists that you haven't heard of. But first, if your studio habits need a kick in the butt, Art Prof has everything you need, tutorials, critiques, and professional development. So our first artist here is Mike Carrado. Uh, Alex, do you want to explain a little bit about Mike? Oh yeah. Uh, Mike is most famous for, and his career took off from the children's book series, Little Elliot, which I think it's safe to say is comparable to icons like Paddington Bear. Um, Little Elliot has a full series now, and Mike specializes in doing a lot of historical research for Little Elliot's time in New York City at the turn of the century. They also recently published an amazing autobiographical graphic novel called Flamer about their experience uh, growing up in middle school and coming out to themselves and their friends. These are so What's your beautiful. take, Lauren? I don't think that you're super familiar with his work. So no. I'm curious to hear somebody who has not spent a lot of time looking at the work, what you think? I think that these are, yeah, I'd never heard of his work before. And I think that these illustrations are super adorable and they do have that really easily relatable childlike wonder. And, you know, most of the, the art world queer people that I know are within painting. So it's really nice to see an artist in in illustration or in children's books and see that that broadness mm -hmm. well the thing about looking at queer artists they're everywhere <laughs> no matter what field you go into you'll find queer artists working in that genre and i think you're right though lauren that the ones that have greater visibility tend to be the ones who are in fine art and really, it's just a matter of going out there and finding the artist you want to find. Because mm -hmm. every artist out there has something to offer. And there's got to be a bunch of artists out there you don't know about. And sometimes it's a matter of research. So, Alex, how did you find Mike Carrado's work? Uh, I was lucky enough to hear him speak at a uh, illustration conference and... He was talking about the most recent Elliot book where they go to little Elliot goes to Coney Island and the months and months and months of research he did to find out what rides were built then, what the streets looked like, what the lights. And that's the stuff I love with illustration. So it was really cool to hear him communicate about that. 
And actually in one of the panels of Flamer, um, he uses that history and research sense to almost frame for frame pay homage to an old X-Men comic where he imagines himself as Jean Grey and his crush as Cyclops. And it's such a cool, you, like his technique is beautiful, but it's such a cool use of his ability to research and understand history. Yeah, that's kind of an act of translation, which is really beautiful. I've been thinking recently about how retelling a story or resampling a story is translation and how that is an art form in and of itself. And so hearing about his ability to, to research these things and be able to retell them is super interesting to me. We have a comment here from Gio who says, I was applying to an art school as a queer person in a very homophobic country. I was nervous, but glad they liked my confidence because a lot of queer people are scared to have a voice or even be themselves. Absolutely, you're walking a plank because when we're looking at, for example, Mike Curato's work, it's really hard to talk about yourself, especially when it's this autobiographical graphic novel but Alex, we need these stories. They have to be out there. Absolutely. And I think that's why his story is so powerful because it's parts of it are very difficult to read and very hard to talk about. And those stories need to be shared so that other artists know that they're not alone in feeling that way. Sentine Charcoal says, I think for a population that's been historically marginalized and has had to hide a big part of themselves for survival, it's important to be able to celebrate their presence in art. Well, that's why I think streams like this, they matter because we're only three voices on the planet. But think about all the people watching the stream. Now all of you know about an artist you didn't know about before. And I think that's quite powerful, Lauren. Oh, definitely. It also helps me gain some perspective as we talked about earlier about how broad the the world is in terms of like what what artwork is available in my world everybody i feel like everybody i know is a queer artist that is making paintings or sculptures or all that something that we talk about a lot and so being able to to put a contrast to see that that oh these artists need um this isn't this isn't the whole world and bringing some of this world into the larger world is really important. All right, this is my pick. This is Greer Langton. Greer Langton is an artist who creates dolls and also environments in mixed media, everything from a clothes hanger to cheesecloth. I mean, it's extraordinary the range of supplies that Greer Langton works with. And she was an American artist, and all of her work is autobiographical. Um, Greer Langton it was transgender, was a drug addict, and clearly had many stories to tell. And it's interesting because I visited the doll hospital in Lisbon when I was in Portugal, and I'm just fascinated with the genre of dolls. And when I stumbled upon Greer Langton, I just was mesmerized. Lauren, I don't know if you're familiar with Greer Langton, but what's your take? These are so... <laughs> there is a real 
playfulness with them, but also a, a certain amount of darkness. And I don't really know any any doll makers. That's such a genre in and of itself. And so I'm wondering, do you know how Greer Langdon got into making dolls to begin with? What was the interest there? I'm not sure. I have not done tons of research on Greer Langdon's work, but I'm fascinated because dolls technically for a lot of people don't go in the fine art world or mm -hmm. you talk about the work as sculpture and yet Greer Langton's work is always talked about as dolls. What do you think about that, Alex? The way Greer Langton's work entered fine art despite it being in an area that's usually somewhere else. It makes me think of that distinction between graphic novel and comic of that dilemma it's like oh well this is good this is literature let's call it a graphic novel and i like this insistence of like no no these aren't sculptures they're dolls <laughs> um and for me it's funny i share with ginger cells comment where this looks cool and a little creepy because my lifelong fear has been dolls <laughs> <laughs> so i find these terrifying and i love it <laughs> There's also something really cool here that I'm thinking about. There is there is a certain doll culture genre right now that I've seen where people are talking about these uh they're they're real dolls. They're they're the same uh like size as a real person, but they're a doll and they get staged in all these different ways and these different environments like this. So this really feels like a precursor to that kind of role playing that happens now. Ripple of Aqua says, I love how these dolls are not idealized in any way. They're not babies. They're not models like Barbies. They seem so much more human to me because of that. That's true. The doll hospital was almost all babies. <laughs> there are a bunch of Barbie dolls hanging from the ceiling in fishnets. <laughs> in one section of the hospital <laughs> but for the most part that is how we associate dolls as dolls are babies dolls are babies in carriages and Greer Langton just explodes that idea got an interesting comment from Anna Weeder who's saying my work deals a lot with the intersectionality between being queer disabled and Jewish it can be really hard to deal with people who think that queer content limits your reach and I think that's a cool thing I like about all of these artists we're talking about, where sometimes the work very much explores the queer identity, but other times it does not. Yeah, I think. Oh, go ahead. There's a comment. Alan Mamba says their anatomy is so fascinating. I would love to know why she chose to exaggerate the figure that way. I think it's for dramatic effect. When you add normal proportions, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a person. <laughs> and I think there's something very uncanny about these. They're close to being people, but also very far away. If you want to get into art world speak a little bit, there is this idea of the doppelganger, which is basically a, a twin, often a not living twin or an evil twin or an uncanny twin and so i feel like these dolls operate in that doppelganger space where they are a reflection of the self but they are they are more they are they're a place where you can enact a, a real a alternate reality 
That's scary. <laughs> Again, because I'm afraid of dolls. <laughs> the thought of a doll doppelganger is unsettling. <laughs> Pat says, when we're taught the, quote, canon, the context of artist sexuality is often ignored. I wonder how many queer artists we actually know quite well, but have been historically denied that representation. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a huge thing, because just like with any group, you don't want to put everybody in a box and only acknowledge them for, say, their, their queerness or their race or their gender or anything else. But you also don't want to erase that experience. And so some artists really want to talk about that experience, which can be, is a life-changing, life-defining experience. And then some artists, they just say, I, I want to do this thing is nothing to do with my identity in this way. I want you to talk about my artwork without pigeonholing me into this group. So we have to respect mm -hmm. both sides of that. That's a really good way to phrase that. All right, let's look at Just X Snow. Lauren, Just X Snow is your pick. Yeah, so Just X Snow is an interesting person. They are a muralist, a, uh, I believe it's Chinese Canadian artist living in the US now. They are a filmmaker a community organizer. They really focus on stories about, um, I would say, ancestors, ancestry elders, the migration. There are a lot of birds in here, which I love. And I have a feeling that that is related to that migration aspect because birds can, can fly over borders or go long spaces in the same way that they that just x talks about say people from the philippines moving to the u.s or someone who whose family like chinatown so this mural right here is in chinatown in new york and it's really beautiful and there are different ways that you can interact with it too there's a lot of text it says which land it's on they're very into uh uh, honoring, paying homage to to who owns the land. So Lenape in New York, um, that's Lenape land for Native Americans. Um, so a lot of just just sex's work is involved with that and those communities, and it's super cool. Yeah, I love how all of their work is personal but also so shared and community-based like Jess X makes work about this shared experience and it's that kind of beautiful thing we were talking you talked about Lauren right before we were showing Jess X's work of it's up to that artist of how much that identity comes into part of their work and it's beautiful how Jess's work is really about uplifting the voices around them yeah yeah, I really loved that. It felt truly community oriented. And one thing that I definitely struggle with as an artist and a painter is how, how individualistic it can often be or be portrayed as. And I think Jess X's work really pushes against that. And it's very overt collaborative work. And if you go to their site, you can 
read how these things are put together basically and what is important and who helped with it every person is identified and i just it, it feels refreshing to see that well i think jessex snow is a really good example that not all work has to be autobiographical we looked at mm -hmm. greer langdon whose work is about her life but jessex snow doesn't do that and talks about communities and it's a much broader view and this type of work i think in a lot of ways is harder because you're trying to represent a larger group of people and of course anytime you try to represent any type of group it can get dicey but i think what i like about the work is that there's a clear feeling of history in these pieces and part of it is the fantastical look Another thing is that we can't identify the people. It's not a self-portrait. And so we look at these people in the murals as icons that represent that community. And that in itself is very powerful. Now, Lauren, we see this is a, I'm going to assume, film piece. Mm -hmm. And some people say, oh, murals and film, what do those have to do with each other? But I think these are very related to the murals. Oh, definitely. So when I learned about Jessex's work, it was through the murals first, because my friend Sonia has worked on several of their murals in the team. I did not know about the film work that they do. And so they have experience as a cinematographer and as a director, and they've directed several short films. And this is from uh, one of one of those films. I believe this one is called After Earth. It's available through the Smithsonian. I believe believe um, you can find it through uh, JustX's website if you want to look at it. But the the kinds of graphics that are included in it, the way things are shot, the importance of generational connection and love and community are all really intertwined and it's on a huge screen which is basically a huge wall it could be seen as a mural too mm -hmm. chrissy brown says also how much queer works have been denied its quietness example all drawings of two women obviously lovers captioned in museums as quote friends well that brings up a really good point that we're talking about the artwork that's one thing but the presentation of it in a museum, in a gallery, online, there's those little plaques that are in museums and some of them hide information. Alex, what's your take on that? That can be very interesting, especially where history is concerned, because I think at that point, it is not just up to the artist and their feelings about it. Their work is then in the public eye. And it's the goal of art history then to tell that honest story to not fit them into a box, but to say that this was a part of it. I mean, even when I was researching for this stream, it's amazing how many out queer artists Wikipedia still has. This is where they met their very best friend that they were best <laughs> friends with their whole life. And they were roommates and best friends. <laughs> like, And it's kind of sad how that's a part of their identity that, yeah, that's only a part of them, but it's worth sharing. It's worth being known. Ginger Cell says, I always admire artists who put themselves so much into their work. It's scary expressing yourself sometimes. What do you think, Lauren? 
It absolutely is. It's it's hard for any artist dealing with expressing themselves truthfully through their work, but especially in marginalized communities and with the LGBTQIA culture, it can be very contentious both in the US and in other countries. I think that it, it feels very risky and people are exposed to both a lot of overt hate and a lot of misunderstanding. And so it's really important that those voices become normalized and shared and um, that, we, that we have a sense of, of compassion and, and openness and interest. All right, Alex, your pick is Charles DeMuth. Yeah, uh, Charles DeMuth was an artist who lived at the turn of the century and artistically was very Cubist in their inspiration and style. Um, but folks have attributed them to potentially paving the way for the pop art movement, which I think you can see very clearly in that first image of the big number five. Um, and I like their work a lot because it's almost like they divided it into sections. They have works like this that were homages for friends and poets and artists that they knew, or he knew. Uh, then they have work that was celebrating his town of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And then the very personal and intimate work of his time at Turkish bathhouses in Paris. And it's beautiful how they are in these kind of sections of different parts of Demuth's life, all using different mediums, different explorations, and different ways to convey the images. Yeah, this, this one piece right here, I think is so beautiful. And again, I see it as this precursor to a lot of the art that we see today, especially with the the figurative narrative movement that's going on that you see in all the galleries and pictures of say gay men for instance together like in the bathhouse like this is just the the luminosity of it it's really gorgeous the way that the figures are so tenderly drawn it's just it's really wonderful clara what do you think well you would never think that the person that painted this is the person that painted this i mean these are opposite ends of the spectrum stylistically and you can see here that this one is quite cubistic <clears throat> in terms of the background, but oh my gosh, those bleeds that are happening in the clothing, they're oh. so expressive. Those butts, those are some great <laughs> butts. That was the first thing I noticed. <laughs> there need to be more cubist butts in the world, please. <laughs> Yeah, it, like that's that duality that you pointed out, Claire, is my favorite part of their work that I think is exciting for such a, a famous artist in history to have that separation. Because I think now we're pressured as artists to be like, cool, you have to find your style and you have to do that thing and that's all you're going to do. But DeMuth's work was so diverse, even in his own lifetime. Ania Miklas says the bathhouse piece feels very intimate. The bodies are portrayed in a way that almost makes them glow. Well, the central figure, I love that shape. I've never mm -hmm. seen this piece in person, but I suspect that that is raw canvas or if anything, a very thin wash 
and then the weight of the value and the bleeds at the bottom. I mean, th this work is, I suspect, influenced so many painters, and yet Charles Demuth is not really that well known. And Lauren, that pumps me out because he likely is responsible for really inspiring other artists. I mean, I definitely remember going over his work in art school 101, but I do not recall ever seeing these images. So I think that is really awesome that <laughs> I learned something new today here. But I also wanted to say it really reminded me of some of Toulouse-Lautrec's work with uh, the prostitutes, the women that he was working with for the for his models for his paintings that tenderness and the luminosity is very similar seven angelic says i like cubist butts and i <laughs> i just love that all right my pick is zanel muholi i'm sorry i may be pronouncing that incorrectly we don't have a team of fact checkers here at art prof but I recently discovered their work and Zanel Maholi is interesting because they don't only identify as a photographer, but as a visual activist. And mm. we're talking about presentation and terminology. I think that's pretty significant. Zanel Muholi is a South African artist and their work is largely about the bigotry, the social injustice towards queer people in South Africa. And I confess, photography in general, it's not really my favorite thing. I mean, it's great, it, it really is, but just as <laughs> my personal cup of tea, it, it's not really my thing. But I discovered this work and my jaw just mm -hmm. dropped looking at these pieces. They're just so, startling and the range from yeah. a piece like this which is super atmospheric to something like this which is so sharp and graphic oh my god i'm just in love with their work alex what's your take have you seen their work before no i haven't and um i'm gonna echo what you said where i love photography but i'm always like that's nice but these are i think it's just in how they use the shape that can make them so powerful like this one has that feel of just such strong divided shapes and the way that you're drawn into it is really compelling. They make you linger on them. Yeah, they're surprising images, I think. I'm not expecting in this image right here, for instance, to see the front of the face. I want to see the end of the body. And so also to get that face staring back at you I mean, staring at themselves, but also staring at us a little bit. It's very powerful, and it also challenges this this voyeuristic um, mm -hmm. performance or part that the viewer has in looking at this work. It it has a presence. the The subjects are activated here, and I think the work is really powerful, not for just what it shows but what Zanel Muholi chooses to hide. Because in this piece, we get enough information to understand what's happening in the scene at the most basic level, but a lot is hidden. What do you think about that, Alex? Because especially this one too, 
we see <clears throat> the circle first, and then we see that there's a face embedded in mm. this almost shroud-like garment. What's your take on that? I think it speaks to that phrase you led with of, you said visual activist, which I think is such a powerful title for artists, especially now, of presenting work. And that is either intentional or not. I think in this case, it clearly is intentional. But making that a part of the piece, a part of the work outside of the image and the composition, and the subject matter, making us think of that sense of visibility. I think there's also something there in several of those images, photographs that I've been learning about in school that's called the, the right to refuse or the power to, to say no, to be opaque, to protect what is important to you or, or vulnerable to you. And I see in these images, especially the ones where everything is blurred except for the eyes of these two people in that couple. And I think that it's done on purpose. The photographer or the couple is choosing what to show and what to keep to themselves to keep in their own lives. There's a power in that that is super important. Charismatic says the visuals of these are just stunning. I mean, the framing, the posing, the specificness of it, just much careful work must have gone into it and it shows. Well, it's interesting because a lot of these portraits, I almost feel like I'm being slapped in the face, like so compelling. And it's interesting because they're portraits, but in some ways, a lot of these are more about the garment. For example, we have this one with this very dramatic headpiece. And that's interesting to me too, because oftentimes people think with a portrait, face, face, face. But these are more compelling because they're not about the face. They're about what's hidden, what's emerging. And I, I just love that it's not that stereotypical portrait that we are so accustomed to seeing. All right, your pick, Lauren, is Gwen John. I thought Gwen John was pretty cool because I feel like she's another one of these artists that often gets overshadowed by her more popular posse. Mm -hmm. So her brother, Augustus, is very popular, but also she was in a long-term relationship with Rodin, you know, the thinker guy, the, 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 those sculptures. And so <laughs> we think about them, but we don't think about Gwen John, who is a very quiet painter and quiet in the sense of, mm. of color. And I think subject matter too, everything is very subtle, mm. very tender. And one thing that I also love about her is that she's Welsh. And I'm, <laughs> I'm Welsh, <laughs> so it's cool to see an artist that <laughs> that shares shares a little bit of my background too. And she mostly she's known for mostly doing portraits of women. Some were women that she was in a relationship with. Some are are strangers. Actually, maybe more strangers. She also really liked cats, 
So you see, I'm really picking someone. <laughs> I knew it. It all comes down to cat. <laughs> so the first piece I ever saw by Guanzhong was actually the last slide here of mine, which was a cat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I found it in a little postcard book, and that's what got me into her. But um, yeah, so she speaks to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I love that sense about these of that quiet softness, as you said, especially now compared to Rodin of like a big works where it's like almost like bops you over the head with itself. Not that there's anything wrong with that sometimes, but these are just so the kind of thing where you could walk past them in a museum. But if you stop to look, you get really drawn in like the gentle expressions are wonderful. The colors are so muted, but perfect. Yeah, like I just adore the diving into these. What do you think about them, Clara? Oh, I think they are so intimate. You really do feel that you're there with this person. And that's so interesting because that implies a relationship. I think oftentimes portraits are, here they are, this is what they look like. Mm -hmm. But I look at this piece, I feel like I'm observing a scene that I'm not a part of, but then this piece looks like she just came over and we're having a cup of tea together. And these quiet moments are very important because we've looked at other artists who really have this loud presence. Greer Langton would be one of those people, but sometimes the more quiet work, it, it just doesn't get the attention and it bums me out because it's just as powerful, Lauren. Yeah, I also really am drawn to her work because she falls under that post-impressionist group of painters. Mm. Yes, this is the cat I was talking about. <laughs> ah, I've got a postcard of the cat. He's being a little loaf. <laughs> but she spent most of her life working in France, and that's where all of those Lena B painters were. And you can tell in that portrait of the old woman, for in instance, looking at that wallpaper, that is very much something, this contrast between the darkness of the woman's coat, or I don't know what you call that, a shawl, and the background is very similar to something that, say, Vuillard has done in his paintings. So interior played a really big, and domesticity played a really important role in that period in that group of artists. And she is part of it in conversation with it, but she's also really doing her own thing, too. Ania Miklas says, they remind me a lot of great portraits I've seen, yet I know I have never seen those specific paintings at all. They hold a lot of personality under the quietness. I went to see the Mona Lisa a long time ago. It's such a circus. It was annoying to have to try to see it because there's 50 tourists in front. My favorite piece in that gallery was Caravaggio's Death of the Virgin. And that's a piece that people would just walk by. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to call more attention to these pieces other than to talk about them, Alex. Yeah, and I think bringing up that idea of give each piece and painting that time. Like, don't walk past that one and seem like, oh, I got it. Some ships and I got it. Um, taking the time to really embrace those quiet pieces. And I don't know, in a, in a way, it almost feels like these are portraits of quiet people, people that are 
you know, still waters run deep kind of thing. And when you really get into them, they are incredibly rich and valuable. Well, yeah. showing everyday life is powerful. Mm -hmm. yeah. We can't all be glamorous like Gerling did. <laughs> A lot of us, <laughs> myself, live kind of boring lives and do not have a lot of fashion. And <laughs> I think that these moments are relatable because it feels like that could be my cat. Lauren, I'm right. sure you think the same thing. <laughs> I think, again, what this is getting at is the, the vastness, the sheer vastness of what it means to be a queer person in the world, an artist in the world. Sometimes it's super overt and that's what the work is about. And other times it's Yes, it's a part of my life, and I also love cats, and I'm going to paint a lot of cats. <laughs> and, and all of those ways are, are valid. All right, everybody. These Google slideshows, they're all available. The link is in the YouTube video description below. Guess what? You can access all the slideshows from all of our streams available on ourprof.org. Lauren and I will be doing a stage session in the Discord right after the stream. Please join us in the post live streams stage channel. And a stage session is where you get to talk to us on voice, which is so much fun. Hearing your voices, talking about all the various aspects of being an artist. So we hope you will join us over there. There are many ways you can support ArtProf for example, through a super sticker. Thank you so much, Amanda, for supporting us. Sorry, we are all trying to click the button. <laughs> you can also make a one-time donation via PayPal. We also accept checks via snail mail. You can purchase an artist call. These are fantastic because as much as we try to cover everything people need, we can't customize it to a specific individual. And so these are so helpful when people really need to know about what they should do in their situation. Thank you, Sentient Charcoal for... Thanks so much. <laughs> I wanna say a big thank you to our top Patreon supporters. The vast majority of our budget is from these Patreon supporters. It's the biggest source of revenue that we have to keep ourselves up and running and free and available. Jennifer Roberts is our latest top Patreon supporter. We greatly appreciate your support. Keep those super stickers coming. Thanks, Arby Dick. Yeah, thanks dudes. But I'm really sad that our second slide lost a column. We need your support and you get perks. You get to hang out with the staff in the Patreon channels. You get exclusive content and meal, email, email newsletters. <laughs> Ripple of Aqua is saying the artist call sounds like an awesome opportunity. It really totally is. does. <laughs> mm -hmm. I am happy though. We're back to a smiling emoji that we Yay. did go up $24 in the Patreon. I wish we'd go up more, but thank you all for supporting us. We can't do it without you. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.